0: This is episode 69 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, you'll hear a few recollections from the history of magic. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast, your podcast home for magic history. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 69. And I really only have one thing in the news department, and that is the uh, revelation of the location of Tony Slidini's grave on Facebook this week. It seems that Bill Wish was maybe the only person who still knew the location of the grave, and uh, was not so eager to give it away, and I know this because I asked him a year ago, and he wouldn't tell me. His exact words were, I hope you can understand that nothing personal, but some information should remain private and not commercialized. Then he went on to say that if he had a change of mind, he'd let me know. And fast forward a year, and he had a change of mind, and... I'll be frank, I don't know what he meant by saying the word commercialized because I wasn't going to sell the information, but, you know, whatever. Um, I'm just glad that the information is out there. Um, I did post it on my Dead Conjurers blog, and um, that's for all to see, and it's a a free resource. Um, That site, by the way, it's a blog that I have where I put the graves and the locations of graves of famous magicians and folks in our industry. And that is uh, deadconjurers.blogspot.com. And you'll see there's a little piece on Slidini right now and a video from Bill Wish uh, where he's standing in front of Slidini's tomb in Orange, New Jersey. And a big thank you to Mr. Wish for sharing this information with the magic community. Uh, oh, by the way, speaking of Sly Dini, he graces the cover of the current Genie magazine, so please check that out as well. So this week, there's no real feature. Uh, I didn't really have time to put anything together, but I didn't want another week or two weeks or three weeks to go by without me posting something, so I'm, I may do a couple of the shorter uh, episodes before I get back to the uh, the full um, the full lengthy episodes. Uh, so something happened this week. We had two birthdays that took place in the Magic World. Obviously, we had more than that, but uh, two in particular. One was my old escape mentor, Steve Baker. He passed away a few years ago, and the last few years of his life were pretty hard because his health had declined so rapidly. Um, he had always planned to make a comeback, even at his advanced age. And I'm sorry that chance never came. It almost did. And that is a story for another day. But um, I'm going to have, I'm going to share a different story with you today. In fact, also this week was the birthday of Jonathan Pendragon. He is still very much alive, thankfully. And I consider him a mentor of illusions, although we have never really met. I did of casually meet Jonathan at a magic conference once years ago, but I'm sure he doesn't recall. And he did send me a very nice note after I wrote an article about the Pendragons on my blog, themagicdetective.com. But beyond that, we've had no contact. And the reason I refer to him as a mentor was because of his writings in Genie Magazine. There were a number of Pendragon issues, over the years, and those were instrumental in getting me started in the world of Grand Illusion. Just to give you an example, there was March 1986 was a Pendragon issue, December 1989, January 1992, and then June of 1993. Those were all issues with the Pendragons on the cover and uh, rather lengthy articles inside, usually written by Jonathan or I think uh, one or two of them may have had an interview with him. They're just fantastic and chalked full of great information. Let me, uh, let me start, though, back over with uh, good old Steve. Now, Steve was an escape artist, and he was also a stuntman, which is not as well known. Uh, he had a lot of Hollywood connections because of his work in the stunt world. And one day in 1986, he got a call from a buddy of his who was, who was a tech advisor on a new movie called Lethal Weapon. You may have heard of it. Uh, the guy remembered a story that Steve had told him about Steve's first encounter with a straitjacket. And the story was this. Uh, Steve Baker's mom worked for a time in healthcare. And Steve asked his mom, hey, can is it possible for you to borrow a straitjacket from work? And she checked with her employer, and sure enough, they let her borrow one. And Steve was just a teenager at the time, and not really very well read in the methods of escaping a straitjacket. Let's just say that. In Steve's own words, I was in my garage, and my best buddy Lee, uh, he proceeded to strap me into this straitjacket. I was wearing a t-shirt, which later I learned was kind of a mistake. I twisted and turned and bent my body in ways that I didn't even know were possible, and then I had an idea. If I could shift my body within the jacket, it might help me gain slack enough to get my arm over my head, and then I could possibly get out. My solution? Run full speed into the garage wall, slamming my shoulder against it. (laughs) Whammo! Ouch. Uh, to make a long story short, I did get out eventually with plenty of marks and scrapes from wearing only a t-shirt. So now back to Steve's friend from the movie. He asks Steve if he could come and share that story with the crew. So sure enough, Steve goes and uh, on set and he shares the story. And Mel Gibson, one of the stars of the movie, uh, wasn't there presently but he got wind of the story and he contacted Steve and he said is that a true story and Steve said yes it's uh, you know exactly what happened and then he says did it hurt and Steve says oh yeah (laughs) and Mel Gibson apparently loved the story so much he incorporated it into a scene in the movie and if you've ever watched the film uh Lethal Weapon the first one there is a scene where Mel Gibson's character is put in a straitjacket and then slams herself into a filing cabinet in order to get out a la the young Steve Baker. Now, I, I've got a bunch of Pendragon stories, but I'd rather stick with um, things within the Genie articles if I could. By the way, interestingly enough, uh, besides being a magician, uh, Jonathan Pendragon was also in a, a, uh, a stuntman, so, pretty interesting there. Um, The first memory of one of these articles, and again, they go back to 1986, was uh, an article called The Magician Versus the Prop. And Jonathan begins by relating a story from his youth. It seems that as a teen, another magician had moved into his neighborhood. And that other magician would be a very young Harry Anderson. I think he I think he was two years older than Jonathan, I think. Anyway, one day Jonathan was visiting Harry and he noticed a very ornately decorated magic prop on a shelf. And Harry asked him what he thought of it. And Jonathan replied, to him, I think it's beautiful. And just then Harry Anderson grabs it out of his hands and throws it across the room. And he then looked at the stunned uh, look on Jonathan's face and said, magic is an art, not a craft. I say that's a pretty strong lesson. And I can just imagine all those of uh, you that collect magic props out there, just that just sent a shiver up your spine. <laughs> the point, of course, was is not to let the prop overshadow the performer. Uh, and he makes one very poignant statement at the end of the article and says, when a concert pianist is taking his bows, he doesn't suddenly turn and point to the piano. I said he, but it couldn't be he or she, Um, same difference. You're not going to point to your instrument. Look how great my instrument, you know. Yeah, you're not going to do that. So um, my favorite Pendragon issue was January 1992. The Pendragons are on the cover, uh, and the preceding articles are all great. But one just really kind of grabs me because it was like you've got to go do this kind of article it's simply titled books and it's a list of 10 books that Jonathan says you've got to have if you're serious about Grand Illusion and at the time I didn't have any of them so here's the list number one is the Jarrett book by Guy Jarrett and Jim Steinmeier number two is the Harbin book by Robert Harbin number three The Illusion Show by David Bamberg. Number four, Secrets of My Magic by David Devant. Number five, Hopkins Magic by Albert Hopkins. Number six, Device and Illusion by Jim Steinmeier. Number seven, Conjurer's Optical Secrets by S.H. Sharp. Number eight, Modern Illusions by Tom Palmer. Number nine, The Magic Poster Book by Charles and Regina Reynolds. And then there's a tie for number 10, so technically there's 11 on this list. Uh, The tie for 10th place is Our Magic by Masculine and DeVant, and Neo Magic by S.H. Sharp. And Jonathan does mention a couple other books in the articles, but these, these 10 that I mentioned are 11, Um, are the ones that have the biggest impact. Now, I do agree, totally. I think they're great books um, for that time period. When I read this article, I set out to find these books, which was no small task. Uh, This was really before the days when magic shops were loaded with books. And uh, my go-to shop was Al's Magic Shop. And though they had books, uh, none of the books that are listed were there. I did eventually find all of the books, um, except for one, the Harbin book, which I did find. I just couldn't afford it at the time. And um, I did find Harbin Kadabra and later The Genius of uh, Robert Harbin, but I still haven't gotten the Harbin book yet, but I will eventually. And since 1992, there have been quite a few incredible books on Grand Illusion. But uh, like I said, I think this grouping by Jonathan is great. By the way, one of the stories shared in the Janie articles comes to mind uh, right now. And it was, was, this is a Jonathan story. He was working at Hollywood Magic part-time. It was a Christmas season and I guess the mid-70s, and someone walked into the shop who gave him pause. And I should say more accurately, he was awed by this gentleman who appeared even bigger in person than he did on the screen. And the man that walked in that shop that day was John Wayne. Mr. Wayne said he had a son who was interested in magic and could, uh, Jonathan, recommend a stocking stuffer. Jonathan suggested the cups and balls and did a demonstration of a simple routine. And Wayne was thrilled and said, I'll take it, but you've got to teach it to me because I don't want my son fooling me. So for the next 30 minutes, Jonathan taught the Duke how to present the cups and balls. I would love to have been there on Christmas morning when John Wayne breaks out the cups and balls and demos it for the whole family and his son I guess it was probably likely his son, Ethan. Uh, How cool that would have been. Wow. Uh, There's a little bit more to the story, though, that makes it kind of uh, unique. After John Wayne had exited the shop, he was walking to his car when he stopped to let another man pass down the sidewalk in front of him. And according to the article, the other was a young man with a long hair tied in the back and a, you know, pigtail or ponytail, whatever they call it. For a moment, the two stood there until the young man gestured for John Wayne to pass first. Please, sir. Wayne dipped his head in a gesture that is familiar to anyone who watches his films. Thank you very much and Merry Christmas, Wayne replied. It's the same to you, sir. And the other man smiled and continued on his way. This was the mid-70s, and here were two icons, radically different political beliefs likely, but... This didn't seem to matter much at all. It was Christmas in Southern California, and almost anything can happen. I love this story because the end reminds me kind of how people are divided today and how just a little kindness, a little common decency, and common courtesy towards each other can go a long, long way. I'm not getting political it's just an observation and that my friends is going to do it for this short podcast where I like I said I didn't want another week go by with nothing so I gave you a couple stories to tide you over and by the way usually it's at this point of the program that I close with if you like the program please like it in whatever way your podcasting provider allows Well, it seems that uh, everyone, including Apple Podcasts, is making it increasingly difficult to find the like button. You can do it on a desktop or a laptop, but good luck finding a like button on a smartphone. For many providers, this is the case. Uh, Still, if you can find a way to like the program, I would appreciate it. Oh, and you may have uh, noticed that I've been putting some of the transcripts of the podcasts up over on my blog at themagicdetective.com Uh, When I do that, it allows me to include images, which obviously I can't do here on the podcast. And also, um, sometimes I add things that I missed on the podcast or I fix something that I may have gotten wrong because that does happen from time to time. Um, So, my friends, that's going to do it for this short episode of the podcast. I'm Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Please be well. Stay safe. Until next time.